But we're in Psalm 107 this morning. And in Psalm 107, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of it as we get ready to read it together. In Psalm 107, uh, in the first few verses, the people are called, those who are redeemed, are called to give thanks to the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 32, there are four groups of people who've been redeemed, who've been rescued by God, who are mentioned. So four stories of God's salvation, his deliverance, his redemption. And then within each of those four kind of pictures of redemption, there are some things that are, that are mentioned. In each section, they mention the affliction that people were in, and then they describe how they cried out to God and he delivered them. In fact, there's a, a verse that's repeated four times. It's the exact same verse. And then so they mention their affliction, they mention them crying out to God and his deliverance, then they describe his deliverance, and then they're told to give thanks to the Lord. And again, the, the same verse occurs four times. So describe, the, so the beginning, first three verses, call the redeemed to praise God, then there are four stories of people who've been rescued, and then verses 33 through the end describe the Redeemer, the one who brings about reversal. So hopefully that will help us as we read this psalm together. We're going to read the whole psalm, and if you're able to, if you would stand as we read God's Word together, if you need to sit down at any time, feel free to do so. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God. And spurned the counsel of the Most High, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. 
Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we do ask that you would be gracious to us. Let those of us who are redeemed indeed say so. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If I were to say to you, uh, our church needs to grow in evangelism, what would you think I was saying? What sort of action steps do you think I would have in mind as I think about a church that needs to grow in evangelism? Some of us might think, oh, well, growing in evangelism means holding evangelism classes, and so maybe we need to get together on Thursday nights and and talk about what evangelism is and, and three steps to sharing your faith and common objections and how to answer those. That might be what some of us think of when we think about growing in evangelism or Some of us might think of going door-to-door, okay, so if our church is going to grow in evangelism, that means we need to have a a door-to-door evangelism ministry, or some of us might think, okay, we need to to have a crusade, we need to have kind of a a big event that we can invite people to, and we can invite people to, and they can, can share, you know, the speaker can share the gospel to people, or maybe we need uh, to to befriend some people and let let them just see Jesus in our life. Maybe that's how we grow in evangelism. Now, all of those things can certainly be things that take place in the heart of a person or the heart of a church that's trying to grow in evangelism, but they're, they're not at the core of what evangelism is. Mark Stiles, in his book, 
evangelism. I think I mentioned it before. He gives a definition of evangelism that that I think is very helpful. And I, I may not be getting all the words exactly right, but he says something like this. He says, evangelism is teaching people the gospel with the goal of persuasion. Evangelism at, at its core, evangelism is, is teaching people the gospel with the aim to persuade. So we're going to people that we're in relationship with and we're, we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Hey, here's who we are. We're sinners who've been separated from God because of our sin. We're in line of God's wrath. God loved us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. Christ lived a perfect life died on the cross for our sins in our place, rose from the dead, and we can be saved, we can be delivered from our sin, we can be delivered from God's wrath by believing in Jesus Christ alone. No works we can do, no righteousness we have in ourselves, simply by believing in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We we take that message to people and we, we tell them that message with the goal of persuading them that it's true so that they will place their faith in Jesus Christ as well. That's, that's evangelism. Now, Mark Stiles says, as he's talking about his definition, he says, I know it, it's kind of a, a dinky definition. <laughs> In other words, it's not a lot exciting of a definition, but, but I think the simplicity of the definition is its strength. I mean, sometimes when we think about evangelism and, and what we need to do to improve in evangelism, we can kind of think some very complicated things. We can say, okay, I need to do this, and I need to have this training, and I need to be able to do these things, and I need to have this event. And, and not that any of those things in and of themselves are, are bad things to do, but the essence of evangelism, brothers and sisters, is very simple. The essence of evangelism is me talking to the people that God has placed in my life and, and proclaiming to them, hey, here's the good news of who Jesus is, and I want you to believe this as well. That's, that's the essence of evangelism. When I, when I say that I believe our church needs to grow in evangelism, and, and I do think that we need to do that as we need to grow in all areas of the Christian life, when I say that we need to grow in evangelism, that's what I mean. We need to grow in our ability to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the people he's, he's brought into our lives with, with the goal of persuading them. The problem is, like, like many areas of the Christian life, well, we struggle in this, right? I, I certainly don't believe we've arrived at where we need to be in this area as, as a church. But I think God is doing some, he's doing some neat things in, in where we are providentially. You know, when I moved to central Illinois in, in 2000, it seemed like it, it wasn't all that difficult to, to grow a church, for a church to grow. I mean, sometimes you grew through evangelism, and, and that was certainly true at, at Bethany and, and Peoria that I was a part of. But, but sometimes uh, you also just grew because lots of people were moving to the central Illinois area. Christians were coming from different areas, and as they moved into central Illinois, they needed, you know, Christians needed a church to go to, and you were a church, and so they started going there. So it was very easy, and, and not it's good to have people in it, moving into your community, but uh, that can sometimes uh, it can sometimes give the illusion that you're proclaiming the gospel, and really you're just attracting new people to the, from the community. And and you could also, I suppose, in early early two thousands, yeah, we were we were growing a lot because you know, churches down the street were imploding, and you were receiving people from other churches. And uh, 
by God's grace, by God's grace, we're at a different place today, I think, in central Illinois. First of all, uh, again, by God's grace, I believe that there are a lot of really good churches and they're strong right now. And of course, our prayer is that that stays the case, right? And then also, and I think this is neat, by God's grace, our, our community has, has, has not been growing at the same rate it's, it's grown in years past. And that provides us with an incredible opportunity to kind of look around us and say, look, God has, has placed literally tens of thousands of people around us who, from all, from, 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 for all we know, have not been persuaded of the truth of the gospel. And now we're in this relationship as, as part of the same community, and, and we have the opportunity, by God's grace, to be, to be focused on these people in a unique way to persuade them of the truths of the gospel. And, and brothers and sisters, I, I say this I say this with love and hopefully with gentleness and and all those nice things. If we are not faithful in fulfilling the the task of telling people the good news about Jesus Christ with the aim of persuasion, if, if we're not faithful as individuals and as a church to be proclaiming the gospel, to be doing evangelism, we're not a true church. That's what the church does. It prepares people to worship God forever, and it proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. And if we're not interested in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and telling people the good news about the gospel, if we're not interested in doing that as individuals, if we're not interested in doing that as a church, there's every indication we're not truly believers, we're not truly a church. But I have confidence in the Lord that we are those who've been saved by God's grace, were those who've been redeemed, were those who have a desire as a church to be effective and faithful in evangelism. So let's, let's look at this psalm. Let me give you a little bit of the, the context here. Psalm 107 begins the, the last book of these kind of five books of the book of Psalm, and some have, have seen kind of a progression from Psalm 105. In Psalm 105, it talks about God redeems his people and he brings them to a place where they can worship. And then in Psalm 106, we see that the people have rebelled against God, their sin, and God deals with their sin and he sends them into exile. And then at the end of Psalm 106, there's this there's this response of the people. They're delivered by God, but then they're rebellious. They're brought low again because of sin. And then it says that God, this is verse 44 of Psalm 106, nevertheless, it says, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. So it's describing the people in exile, and what do they do? They, they cry out to God. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us, so we're, we're there in exile, gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So God, this, so obviously this was written sometime in the uh, early 6th, late 5th century B.C. The people have been uh, brought out of exile, and so they're responding to praise. And so, look, they, they say, God, we wanted you to save us so that we could 
and gather us so that we can give thanks to your name. And then Psalm 107 describes the thanks that they give. So Psalm 107 is those who have been redeemed describing their redemption. And as they describe their redemption by God, we see something kind of obvious, but, but may strike us as profound. People who have been redeemed talk about it. Those who have been redeemed by God tend to mention it. The people who have been scattered to the east, the west, the north, the south, and then are, are gathered by God, they don't just say, well, that, well, that was nice and never mention it again. They, they thank God, they praise him for it. And the same is true for you and me. And that's kind of the main thing that I want you to grasp with me this morning. Evangelism is not some, some complicated ministry that we develop separate from the rest of our Christian life. Evangelism is a part of who we are as the redeemed. Those of us who are redeemed tend to mention it. We talk about it. We exude it in our lives. We love God. We love the fact that he saved us and we talked about it talk about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at the theme of the psalm, the first couple of verses, then we're going to talk about the redeemed, then we're going to talk about the redeemer. And we're not going to have time to get through every part of this to the same level of depth. We're going to highlight a couple of things from the psalm. The first thing is this, the theme. Let's first of all talk about the theme. What is the psalm saying? We've already talked about this. The psalm is a call to proclaim God's redemption. It's a call to proclaim God's redemption. Look at the first couple of verses. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. So you're, you're, you're to thank God because of his goodness. Now, who is being called to thank God? Well, verse 2 tells us. It's the redeemed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let those who have been redeemed talk about it. And it talks about the type of redemption that they have received. It's those who have been redeemed from trouble those who've been gathered in from the lands, the east, the west, the north, and the south. And the, the four groups that we talk about can kind of be linked to those four different geographical areas. The, the exiles have gone east, west, north, south, and those who've gone in those different directions are to talk about it. They've been gathered in by God there to proclaim their redemption. Every week I, I try to spend kind of some special time with, with one of my kids. And so each week we'll go out maybe for ice cream or something like that and, and we'll just kind of talk. And those of you who have young kids or those of you who have kids or those of you who have parents or those of you who know people, uh, you know that sometimes it's, it's hard to get people to talk as you come into a discussion with them. And so what I try to do is I, I try to, to think of things that my kids are going to want to talk about. So one kid, I might say something about running or something about um, what they're reading. Or another kid, I might talk about some, some article I read, tried to save about technology or about virtual reality. Another kid, I might say, you know what, this, this last Marvel movie, I, I didn't quite understand a lot of it. Can you help me understand, uh, you know, help me understand what was going on here and how does this relate to whatever movie this is related to? And, and so to kind of get them talking and another kid I might say, uh, you know, what, what animal do you think is the fluffiest? And a you know, long conversation about how exciting animals are. Now, my kids aren't, aren't dumb. They, they know what I'm doing. They know that I'm trying to, to elicit conversation because I, I love them and I want them to talk about things they want to talk about. My kids, know, my kids know to do that to me. Dad, 
what podcast have you listened to recently? Uh, Dad, are you reading anything interesting? And then they know to go, mm, mm-hmm, 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 that's interesting. We, we tend to talk about the things we're excited about. And what's happening here is you're, you're talking to a group of people who've been redeemed, and, hey, tell me about your redemption. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. As we think about the gospel, the gospel is not some message we reluctantly share. Oh, i got to share the gospel. It's, it's about what God has done in our lives, what he has, has done and continues to do. And if, if it's something that we're not excited about, there's a, there's a possibility we haven't fully understood the redemption that we've received. Or that we don't love the people we're talking to. Several times as I've talked with people about evangelism, there's, there's a question that's come up. It's kind of a strange question to me. The question I've been asked is, Daniel, what if there's someone I know doesn't know the gospel, and I want to share the gospel with them, and so I, I become their friend. Is it wrong that I've become their friend just so that I can share the gospel with them? Or is it possible I just became their friend to share the gospel with them? In other words, like, um, have I done something wrong there? Which is kind of a weird way to think about our lives and about people who may not have placed their faith in Jesus Christ yet. First of all, it can kind of be a pretty lame excuse not to share the gospel. I'd like to share the gospel, but I don't want to be a jerk, and so I'm afraid that if I share the gospel with this person, I might be kind of being kind of a jerk, and so I don't want to be a jerk. You know, I don't know about that. But it's also just kind of a, a weird way to think about life and relationship. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, my, I'm, I'm thinking about giving my children food, but if I put food on the table, am I doing it because I love them or do I just not want them to die? I don't know. I'm not sure. I should probably watch my motivation here, right? No, it's, it's kind of all tied together. You, you feed your kids because you love them and you want them to have good things. And as we, as we encounter people in life, this is how we're encountering people. Look, I'm a person who's been redeemed. I've received the gospel. Of Jesus. I've been saved by God. And now as I encounter other people, I, I don't love them just because I'm this, this nice, altruistic human being. I love them because I, I, I've experienced love. And I know that I don't deserve the love that I've received. And I, I desire, because of God's love residing within me, I desire other people to come into relationship with God as well. It's a different way to think about it. But I, I think the more biblical way. Not, well, I've got this product to sell, and should I sell it to this person? I need to watch my motives. No, it's, 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 it's our life. It's our sustenance. Now you say, well, what do you mean? How, Help me understand who we are as redeemed and how understanding who we are as redeemed helps us, help us, helps us proclaim the gospel. I'll absolutely do this. Let's, let's talk here next in verses 4 through 32 about the redeemed. Now there's four things that we kind of notice about, four pictures that are given of the redeemed. And again, each picture provides a, a story of affliction, then it provides this the story of God's of people crying out to God and God delivering them, then it kind of elaborates on the deliverance, and then it talks about the response of thanksgiving. So who are those of us who have been redeemed? Well, first, we are those, we are those, we see, who are the wanderers who have been found. We are the wanderers who've been found. The, the affliction is described first. Look at, look at verse 4. It says, some wandered in desert waste. Now, again, think about the directions of the compass. To the east is a desert from Israel. And it says uh, that 
they're finding no way to a city to dwell in. So they're wandering in these desert places. There's no way to, to arrive at this a city that they need can, they, they can dwell in and all the security that a city would provide. And it says they're hungry and thirsty. Their souls fainted within them. And so he's describing here the, a physical condition that the exiles, some of them, would have faced. They're wandering in the wilderness. They have no way of knowing which direction a city lies. They don't know how they're going to receive those, those things, those physical things that a city would provide for them. Shelter, nourishment, water, food, relationship. But we also see that he's, the, the affliction that he's describing here is not just physical wandering. Not just physical thirst. There's a a spiritual thirst as well. The soul is thirsty. Verse 9 says that it's a longing soul and a a hungry soul. What is this longing and hungry soul? I, I think he's describing a soul that's been separated from God. A soul that's that's thirsty. In a desert place, because it's it's a soul that is separated from God. Now, how does a soul become separated from God? And Donald Whitney has written a book called Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health," and he has a great section talking about the, the thirsty soul. But some souls, and may, maybe this is you this morning, some souls are thirsty because they've never been in relationship with God. They've been separated from God and they've never come into relationship with him. And so they're, they're thirsty souls and they, don't even, they can't even articulate the type of thirst that they have. And so they, they try to drink water from all different sources and, and yet they find that the water that they drink doesn't bring satisfaction. They seek satisfaction through hobbies, money, power, sex, land, entertainment, religious activity, social work, education. There's this longing of the soul, this separation, this, this thirst, and they don't know how to satisfy it. And so they, they try all of these different things. Ecclesiastes 1.14 describes this. The, the preacher says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. There's this seeking for satisfaction and they can't find it. As St. Augustine said very famously, Thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Some souls are thirsty because they've never found God in the satisfaction that is found through his son Jesus Christ. Some souls, though, are, are thirsty because they've found God and wandered. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. In other words, there's, there's this recognition that it's possible for a believer to be in a relationship with God and, and to drink from, from Jesus, the living water, and, and then to wander. And maybe that's, maybe that's you this morning, or maybe that's been you in the past. You found yourself facing a reality of, of I, I have a hungry, thirsty soul. I'm afflicted. I'm separated from God. 
Now, what's, what happens next? This verse occurs four times. The first time is here in verse 6. They, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and what does God do? He delivers them and describes their deliverance. He, he leads them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And, and we see other places in Scripture, the city being described as the place where God himself dwells, where we can access through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And then, so there's the affliction, there's a crying out to God, there's God's deliverance, and then there's this call to thank the Lord. Thank the Lord, it says, for his steadfast love. And again, verse 8 is repeated four times throughout this psalm. For his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This morning, if you are a person who has been seeking satisfaction in waters besides Jesus Christ, I can assure you, you will not find satisfaction, right? We cry out to God, he delivers us, and then what do we do? We we talk about it. We mention it. We, we proclaim the satisfaction we found in his son, Jesus. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend, and it was a friend I, I had not seen since high school. It had been, I don't know, maybe, maybe this was a while ago. Maybe it, I hadn't seen him for, for over a decade, let's say. It, it had been quite a while. And we start talking. I ask how he's doing. He says, well, um, I, I had a kind of a life-changing experience a few years ago. He says, I was, I was with my company on a, a hiking trip with my girlfriend, and we were supposed to go out for a couple hours, and we were hiking the, uh, near San Jacinto, and, and the group went one way, and we kind of saw this trail, and I said, hey, we'll, we'll catch up with you just a second. We kind of want to do a little exploring. We, we went this way, and then then we, we couldn't find our way back to the main trail. And he said, we got lost. This, this thing was supposed to be a couple hours. We got lost for three days there in the mountains. He said, in fact, we were, we were pretty sure we were going to die. It was getting cold and things like that. And then we, we stumbled upon the campsite of a, a, a person who had died like a year before we got lost. We found his campsite. We found some matches and some supplies and we were able to, to survive. And then he talks about, then he talked about his rescue. Now, as he was talking about his rescue, I wasn't thinking, well, this is kind of an awkward conversation. You kind of slip that in there a little weirdly. You know, no, I, I understand. This, is, this was something that had had a profound impact on him, and he was, and he was talking about it. The same is true for, for us. Who are we? We who are redeemed are, are wanderers who've been found. Now, if we really believe that we are people who've, who've been wandering and now have been found, and that's, that's an exciting reality to, it, to us, don't you think that's going to come up in, in conversations with people? Absolutely. Who else are we? Number two, we see that we are the prisoners who've been set free. So we're the wanderers who've been found. We're also the prisoners who've been set free. And look at what is described in the next section, first of all, again, there's the description of the affliction. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And so, you know, to the east is the desert, to the west is where the, the sun sets, and it's where darkness is. And so there are other exiles, other people who are in exile, who are sitting in darkness, and 
the, the text makes clear these, these people who are in exile and become prisoners, it's describing this physical reality, but it, it says it's due to their sin. Verse 11, they had rebelled against the words of the Lord and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And so the people who had been taken to exile and become prisoners, this was, this was not just some happenstance. This was a result of their sin. And then verse 12 tells us something kind of interesting, right? It says that he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They, they fell down with none to help. Now, now, why would God do that? He's describing physical bondage. The, the exiles, the, the people who were in exile were, were physically in bondage. That, that absolutely happened to some of them. But of course, just as was true in the previous stanza, it's also true here. This is also describing spiritual bondage. And the interesting thing about spiritual bondage is that sometimes those of us who are in spiritual bondage, who are enslaved to sin, we don't even recognize that we're enslaved to sin. In fact, if someone were to ask us as they confronted us in our sin, how are you doing? We would say we're doing well, and we would even point to our sin sometimes as the source of joy, not bondage. Think about the, the, the bondage of greed or the bondage of materialism, the bondage of, of sexual sin. You know, we live in a, a very interesting time in our, in our culture where people will describe their enslavement to sexual sin, but as they describe their enslave, enslavement to sexual sin, they'll say things that, that, are, that are terms that, in my mind, describe enslavement. You know, I, I can't operate any other way. This is who I am. This is, you know, I'm bound by my by, by, I'm bound by my biology, or, or this is just kind of who I am. And so I, I cannot help but express my sexuality in, in whatever way, whatever uh, perversion of what God would have me do. This is, this is who I am. I can't do anything else. They're describing enslavement, right? And yet, what do they say? This is, this is freedom. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange way to think. So what does God do? In verse 12, he he causes physical affliction so that they will have the recognition that, that life is not bringing satisfaction. And so what do they do? Again, they, verse 13, second time it's repeated here, they cry out to God. And what does God do? He delivers them. And then it describes their deliverance. He brings them out of darkness. He brings them out of the shadow of death. He bursts their bonds apart. And now what are they to do? What's the response? Verse 15 Again, this is the second time it's repeated. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. That's that word there is chesed, his, his faithful love. Let them thank God for his, his love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and he cuts into the bars of iron. There's a deliverance here. A deliverance that only God can bring about. My favorite hymn is, And Can It Be? And there's that that verse that I think describes this so well. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What is that describing there? That's describing redemption. It's describing deliverance from the bondage of sin, a deliverance that only God can bring about. 
And so what's the response? It's, it's thankfulness. Thank God for it. Just like with the desert, people try a variety of things to free them from the bondage of sin. Once they recognize they're in the bondage of sin, we try a variety of things to, to free ourselves, right? Some of us try moralism, right? Or legalism. Yeah, I, I am an, I'm an angry person and I'm, I'm not going to be angry anymore and so I'm going I'm to be more moral. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to respond the right way. I'm going I'm to do this right. Or I, I'm a legalist. I, I want to I be free from the bondage of sin and, and I think that being freed from the bondage of sin means I'm going to do these, these ten things. I'm going to do them well and as I do these ten things and God is going to find me acceptable and I'm going to be freed from the bondage of sin. And what do we find? We find that moralism, legalism, they just don't work. There's this uh, book I'm reading right now. Heard about it on a podcast. Um, and and it's, a, it's a book that I think is going to be helpful in, in some areas. It's, it's a secular book, I, I think. And um, although it seems like it has some spiritual things in there, again, I haven't read it all, but um, has some, some helpful things, and it's, it's called The Power of Habit. Maybe some of you have read it. The, the Power of Habit. Then subtitle, very interesting. Why we do what we do in life and business. And so it's, it's describing, hey, if, if you want to be free from some of these things, here's, here's what you need to change your habits and you'll experience freedom. And again, I think there's going to be some helpful, practical advice in, in some of these things, but of course, I think it's going to fall short of understanding our ultimate motivation. It talks about changing your cravings. And so, you know, you crave this thing that's unhelpful, change your cravings, and then you'll crave this thing instead. But, but what is it describing? It's kind of describing, look, change, change this bondage for this bondage. <laughs> change this thing you're enslaved to to this thing you're enslaved to. It's only the gospel that offers us complete redemption. Now, how does this help us in our proclamation of the gospel? If I'm a person who's been redeemed from sin, if I've been freed from the bondage of sin, what do I do? I, I tend to mention that. It comes up in my conversation. It, it means that as I interact with people, I, I still acknowledge the reality of sin. <clears throat> It's a hard thing to do in our culture, but it's a, a necessary thing to do if I'm to help a person understand the truth of the gospel. It's not that I was just a, a person who needed a, a lift up and kind of a, a hear some encouragement and God provided that for me. No, I, I continue to acknowledge the fact, look, I was, I was lost in sin. Here's what the reality of sin is, and here's who God is, and here's how he delivered me through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Third thing we see about who we are. We're the sick who've been healed. I'm going to go through these last two kind of quickly here. We're the sick who've been healed. He describes the affliction. They're, they're people who have become a, a sick in their transgression. They're sick because of their transgression. They, they did some foolish things, uh, sinful things, and it led to this illness. What do they do? Verse 19, they, again, they cry out to God. What does God do? He delivers them. It describes their deliverance in verse 20. In fact, it's kind of, a, I love how it, phrases it here. It says, he sent out his word and healed them. So these are people who've been living foolishly. God gives them his word, and his word describes, here's how you live rightly, and there's healing. And then what do they do? 
Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Fourth thing we see here about who we are, we're the weak. We're the weak who've been rescued. The last picture that he gives us is is one of these people who are in physical danger. They're traveling the sea, and as they're on the sea, a great storm arises, and and they recognize that they don't have the ability to save themselves. They see that, that God is powerful, and they don't have the ability to save themselves. Now, we are people who travel the sea a little bit more easily than the Israelites did. Uh, although uh, this last week on her birthday, Ellie asked if we could watch this, this movie about some people who were trapped in the ocean, and it did not go well for them. So we still have problems with the sea. But even, even more than that, even more than that, not only are we as human beings people who are traveling the sea, but as, as our understanding of the universe has grown, we've, we've seen that we're on a a tiny little planet in a large solar system that's a tiny little solar system in a larger galaxy, in a galaxy that is a tiny little galaxy in a vast, vast universe. We are incredibly tiny and incredibly fragile in our journey through space. One commentator said this, the hurricane shakes us and to seeing that in a world of of gigantic forces, we exist by permission, not by good management. In other words, as we we encounter the storms of life and the reality of, of being weak, we recognize I exist not because of my skill or wisdom, but by God's grace. God rescues those who cry to him, so there, there's a description of their affliction in verses 23 through 27. And then what do they do? They cry out to God and his deliverance, verse 28. Then it describes his deliverance in verses 29 and 30. He makes the storms be quiet. They're glad. He brought them to their desired haven. And then there's the expression of thankfulness that they're called to give in verse 32. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. Last thing we see then is is the Redeemer. We're not going to go very far into this, but I just want you to notice as he talks about the Redeemer, who is the Redeemer? The redeemed are those who have been rescued by God. The Redeemer is the one who rescues them. And what do we see about God? He's the one who brings about reversal. When things are going well in their sin, he brings disaster to draw people to himself. When things are empty, when things are a wasteland, when people are separated from him, he brings about reversal so that people can come into relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are, and, and that's who God is. Growing our, in our ability to do evangelism is not as complicated as we make it. Growing in our ability to do evangelism is simply recognizing I've been redeemed. I'm, I'm the soul that was thirsty that God has 
given his son Jesus to, to, to find satisfaction. I'm, I'm the one who was imprisoned that God has rescued. I'm the one who has been sick and lived foolishly, and God, through his word, has healed. I, I'm the person who's weak and hurting, and, and God has provided a firm foundation in his son Jesus. Growing in my ability to be a good evangelist is being overwhelmed by those truths and communicating them to the people that God brings into my life. What I want us to do is I want us to prepare our hearts for communion. In fact, I'm going to ask the men if they begin to make their way forward. And there's, there's two things I'd encourage you to do as we prepare our hearts for communion. The first, I, I would encourage you to avail yourself of God and his matchless grace. To, to first of all just say, God, I, I want to be one who cries out to you. And so maybe you're hurting this morning, your soul is thirsty, and you're, you're a person who, you know, as we mentioned last week, you're a person who can worry about things and be weighed down by things. And so first of all, just avail yourself to the mercy of God this morning. Maybe there's a sin that has just entangled you in some, some oppressive ways. I, I would encourage you this morning cry out to God. Just cry out to God for him and his deliverance and receive his salvation. That's the first thing I would encourage. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the means by which we have the ability to come into relationship with God, to experience his redemption. It's through the sacrificial work of his son, Jesus. And so we cry out to him. But then my other encouragement to you this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper is to realize this. You know, Paul talks about communion as being proclaiming the death of of Christ until he comes. And so I would encourage you as we partake of the Lord's Supper to not just receive God's redemption, but I would encourage you, of course, to do that, but also ask God to reveal to you, God, how can I be proclaiming that redemption, not just through communion here inside this room, but how would you have me proclaim your redemption and to whom would you have me proclaim your redemption to this week, maybe even this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, the good news of your son, Jesus. We, we, we cry out to you, and we beseech you to continue your, your work of redemption in our lives, that you continue to work out the story of redemption in our lives as we continue to place our faith in your son, Jesus. And now as we prepare our hearts to partake of your supper, we pray that you'd help us to know how and where and to whom we can communicate these gospel truths. Work in the lives of those around us. Be the, the, the redeeming God in the hearts of our children, in the hearts of our friends, in the hearts of our co-workers. Draw them to yourself as we love them and desire them to see uh, you in your beauty. And We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.